Welcome. You're listening to The Sanctuary Podcast. Be sure to follow us on our social media channels. You can find The Sanctuary Jupiter on all major social media platforms. Thanks for listening to The Sanctuary Podcast. Now I'm going to preach from John chapter 8. If you've got your Bibles, open up or open up your iPads or your phones or whatever to, to John chapter 8. But, but I'm going to actually start in the Old Testament and maybe set this up a little bit. I'm, I'm kind of a history guy and an Old Testament guy. And um, I'm getting ready for this fall coming up in my church in Cape Coral for preaching in the, the Ten Commandments. And so I'm kind of prepping and in that too. And it was interesting in the midst of doing that and then going into John chapter 8 and, and seeing some amazing connections. In, in Exodus 20, the people of Israel have gone through the 10 plagues and they've crossed through the, the, the parting of the sea and they're at Mount Sinai. And, and the setting is essentially God's introducing himself. The people have known God as, and and, and all through Exodus, they talk about God as being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like our God of the grandfathers from 400 years ago. He was was personal to them. We don't know his name. We've never heard him before. So they, they talk about him like the God of those guys. Well, by the time you get to Exodus 20, they're at Mount Sinai, and God comes and like introduces himself. And he says, I am your God. And, and it sounds like this. God spoke all these words, and we say commandments. We talk about 10 commandments. In Hebrew, they're actually just the 10 words. That actually makes a big difference. The first word or commandment in the Hebrew numbering doesn't start with, you won't have any other gods before me. The first word the Hebrew numbering is, the Hebrew numbering is this. I am the I am. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The first word is, is like an identity. God introduces himself. Here's my name, Yahweh. I am the I am. Your God. So all of a sudden the people are defined. You're my people. I'm your God. And every one of the, what we call commandments, hinges off of that. You could read that phrase before each one of the commandments. I'm the Lord your God who rescued you. So you won't have any other gods before me. I'm the Lord your God who rescued you. So you'll keep my name holy. I'm the Lord your God who rescued you. So don't kill each other. Don't steal from each other. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Everything is rooted in, in relation. Now, this is known as the law, the starting point of the law, the Torah. The first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, the Torah is what defined everyone. And the amazing thing about this law is the people stunk at keeping it. Like, can I, can I say like the very first thing that covenant Israel did recorded in the Bible is break the law. The first commandment, as we know it, they all melt down their jewelry, make a golden calf and bow down and start worshiping it. Worshiping it. And the amazing thing is we, we see there's a little phrase which sounds so strange. We all know Moses comes down. He's got two tablets of the law. It says that God, with his finger, wrote those commandments, wrote those words on those tablets. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I, my signature stinks. I mean, you ever sign a mortgage? The first time I signed a mortgage, the first three times I signed my name, it was remotely legible. Like, I'm the kid who, like, when you talk about they're taking script out of schools, I'm like, thank you, Lord. This is good, because as soon as I could stop writing in script, I did. The only script I use now is to sign my name 
completely illegibly. Because after I write it three or four times, every signature after that gets progressively worse and simply looks like a little scribble. And the worst part is that, again, even last night, went out to a restaurant and we paid. They, they put the tablet and they, here, write with your finger. If my, fin- my signature stinks holding a pen, you should see it with a finger. It just looks like, Bleh. And I do it now on purpose, as illegible Ill, as, illegible as possible. So I don't want you to be able to recognize it because if ever fraud comes up, and they pull that signature up, and you can re- read remotely anything close to Edward Nugent, it wasn't me. <laughs> See, my finger, when you're writing, it looks absolutely ridiculous. When it says that God, this weird detail, God used his finger to write these words. Now fast forward about 1,500 years, give or take. Jesus comes. The beginning of John actually starts out with the word was with God in the beginning, and the word was God. And this word became flesh, dwelt among us, that, that God himself became one of us. And it leads to this temple scene. Jesus is at the temple in John chapter 8, and it starts like this. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and he taught them. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. What do you say? This they did, they said, to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger in the ground. And they continued to ask him, and he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No, Lord. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. The picture is Jesus teaching at the temple. Common enough thing. He did it often. Every time he was in Jerusalem, he'd sit down in the temple and people would gather around and here's Jesus teaching. And the the idea of this woman being dragged naked, caught in adultery. And do you know who's missing from this scene? Yeah. Yeah, the guy. Like it takes two to tango, right? The reality is like they just bring her. This reeks of some kind of setup. Because these guys are looking for reasons to challenge Jesus. And their idea is this. Jesus is soft on the law. Jesus is soft on the law. He's forgiving all these people. He's eating with tax collectors. He's hanging out with sinners. He shouldn't have anything to do with these people. Jesus is soft on sin. So let's put him in a trap. Law of Moses says we should stone adulterers, male and female, both of them. It requires two witnesses to see the act you realize in all of scripture, there's never once that that sentence was actually ever carried out? It's almost impossible to prove. You need to have two people, at least, who see it happen. Apparently, they've set this up. They've got their ducks in a row. They've got witnesses. She's caught in the act, and we can do it. As they bring her in there by herself, somehow the guy slips away, 
Maybe he was in on it. Maybe he was one of them. We don't know. They bring her to Jesus and bring the charge. Law of Moses says we need to do this, Jesus. What do you say? Here's this amazing thing, because the author of the law is the word made flesh. Jesus is that author of the the law, that Moses that they run to. He's the one who wrote it. He knows it in and out. He also knows what it's for. And it was never meant to be the basis of relationship. I think most of us tend to have an idea of, uh, of God's more pleased with me when I'm being good than when I know I'm not being good. Because we all have parents, right? Parents, we love our kids. We love them more when they're behaving. Or is that just me? It's a reality. We, we, like, I love all my kids always, all the time, but I like them a lot better when they're behaving. And the fear is that the more I screw up and the harder it becomes to deal with me, that eventually maybe they'll give up on me. Maybe they'll kick me out. Maybe they'll throw me out. Maybe this is going worse than I thought it is. See, we, we tend to use the law as our, our way to get to God, which makes the numbering of the commandments actually so important that the first word of that commandment is relational. God doesn't say, here's my law, here's my rules. If you do this, then I'll be your God and you'll be my people. If you, if you follow these rules, if you... I'm going to be pleased with you. I will love you. I will care for you. No. First word, I already am. I've already rescued you. I'm the one who brought you out of slavery. I'm the one who did all the work for you. Because of what I've done for you, you are my people, and I am your God. Jesus comes along to people who try to use the law to measure up everybody else and measure themselves to God and everything else. And use this poor woman as a prop in a way to prove that Jesus is soft on sin. They drag her before him. Jesus ignores them. And I'm not going to get into the Hebrew and all of it, the connections, but but suffice it to say that the, the language used is unique to this passage. It's the only time when Jesus writes in all of Scripture. The only time we ever see Jesus writing. And the language is the exact same language used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's only used from Exodus 31, where God writes with his finger on the tablets of the law. As Jesus is stooped down, writing, theologians debate and talk about all that. What was he writing? What in the world? could? Because John goes out of his way to say it and makes sure that he says he used his finger to write it. Was he writing the sins of the people around them? Was he writing the law? I don't know. But if the language fits so well, I kind of believe he's probably writing something of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The simple summation of all of the commandments. Or maybe he's writing out every single one of them. I don't know. But as he's bent down in writing, they keep pressing him until Jesus the author of the law, the only one who could really truly interpret the law of Moses because he's the author, simply looks at them, says, whoever's without sin, go ahead, throw the first stone. Let it fly. Now, truth is, 
There's only one person there who could throw that first stone, right? Because there's only one person there without sin. The, the wisdom of age kicks in. The oldest are the ones who walk off the first. Maybe because they've committed the most sins, they've had the most time. Maybe they've got the most maturity to recognize we're done. He just won the argument. We're out of here. But one by one, they're gone. Jesus interprets the law for us. Jesus interprets the law for her. Yes, the law says the wages of sin is death, period. It's it's the democracy of sinners. We're all convicted equally by this. But what Jesus says to her, is there anybody left to condemn you? No. Neither do I. The guy who could throw the first stone doesn't. Why? Sin requires punishment. Sin requires death. Why would Jesus not throw the first stone? Well, because the one who kept the law perfectly was the one who would actually take every stone for breaking that law. It's amazing when you read the Gospels how many times uh, Jesus is confronted by, by people who come to him asking him law questions. Uh, a young lawyer comes to Jesus uh, and not, don't think lawyer like somebody you go to if you've got a criminal charge or you need a will signed or a real estate. No, the, the, when, the, when the Bible talks about a lawyer in the New Testament, they're talking about a, a legal expert in the Torah. Okay, they're, they're like a, a, a religious law scholar. The religious lawyer comes to Jesus and says, what's the most important commandment? So Jesus asks them, well, you know the law. How do you read it? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, great, you got it figured out. Do that and you'll live. Just do it. And of course, now's when he kicks in like a lawyer like we know. He says, well, who's my neighbor? In other words, like, if I don't really know who my neighbor is, then I can't really be required to love him. So Jesus, who really is my neighbor? That leads into the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus gives a guy who asks a law question a law answer. You know the law, do it. And do it till you choke on it. Do it until you give up. Because if you went out and loved someone like the good Samaritan, the parable of the good Samaritan, you'd wind up broke. Your family would leave you and you wouldn't be long until you were the guy laying on the side of the road. You don't have the resources to love someone like that. A rich young ruler comes to Jesus. Jesus, what do I need to do to get into the kingdom of God. What do I need? What do I lack? Jesus says, you know the commandments. He says, all those commandments you give me, Jesus, love my, love, uh, love my parents, honor my father and mother, don't kill, don't steal, all those things I've done since my youth. And I got a little note in my Bible that says, and now Jesus rolled his eyes. Because it's kind of absurd. You always honored your mother and father. Never once lipped off. Never once did anything bad. Never once took anything. But Jesus doesn't call him out. Jesus leaves him in his perceived self-righteousness because he's a good guy. Jesus says, well, one thing you lack. Take everything you got, sell it, give it to the poor, come and follow me. 
How the guy, anybody remember? How'd the guy react? What'd he do? Yeah, he just, he walked away. Jesus says he has great wealth. Couldn't do it. Is Jesus giving two different gospels? To one, he's giving the law. To the woman caught in adultery, he's giving free grace. No. Jesus rightly applying the law. Because the law won't do, mean anything for you until it breaks you. The law will always break you. It will destroy. It does. Anytime sinful people, imperfect people, come against a perfect law, it always accuses. Always. And here's where the interpreter of that law comes in. Because when he sent the the rich young ruler to sell all he had and come and follow him, and he couldn't do it, Jesus sent him off on a fool's errand. It's an errand you can't complete. And it's an errand you'll fail at. Love your neighbor as yourself perfectly. Do it all the time. It's a fool's errand. He sends him off with the law to fail so that maybe they'd come back with a better question. Jesus, is there any way I can be saved? Is there any possible way that I can be saved. And that is the Jesus who says, does anybody condemn you? No, neither do I. See, the lawgiver reorients our relationship to the law completely. I know Tullian's used the phrase here before that we live from God's approval, not for God's approval. And that's exactly what this is. If, if the law is the way we get God's approval, if the law is what makes God pleased with me or displeased with me, well then, doing it, keeping it, making it happen is my most important task. But if Jesus flips this upside down by being the one who takes the punishment for the law for us and from us and gives us his approval, well then, the relationship is completely different. Now, let me kind of focus on that last phrase now because it might be the most misunderstood part of this. The legalist will read the final phrase and say, see, go and sin no more. The most important part of this entire story for the legalist becomes that point. Jesus forgives you, but now get it right. Jesus loves you now, but don't keep doing it. Don't screw up. This is where I, I think it's kind of helpful sometimes when, when we struggle because here, here I am and I read this and this, is, this has become the hardest part of this for me because I know the two words that I add on to this in every relationship that I've ever had. If I've hurt someone when I sinned against my parents, when I've hurt people around me and they've forgiven me, and they say, don't do it again. What are the two words we add on to that? We all kind of know the implication, or else. Don't do it again, because if you do do it again, I probably won't forgive you next time. You hurt me. I'm going to forgive you now, but don't do it again. Is that what Jesus is saying here? I don't think so. As a matter of fact, I absolutely don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. 
See, the gospel is always a call out from your sin. The gospel is always a call for you. You don't need to keep doing that. If behind every sin is unbelief, behind every sin is essentially me kind of trying to make up for whatever I feel is missing. Love, acceptance, approval, something I'm seeking after. And in the case of adultery, or whatever it is that she was looking for in what she was doing or what we do, it's always trying to fill a void that I can never really fill. When Jesus looks at her and says, go and sin no more, it's like this invitation. You don't need to keep doing that. It wasn't working in the first place. You'll never find what you're looking for in somebody else's bed. You'll never find what you're looking for in a bottle. You'll never find what you're looking for on a computer screen. You'll never find what you're looking for in another person. You won't find it there. And when life becomes this treadmill that we chase after looking for all of those things that only the one whose finger wrote the law the one whose finger interpreted the law said, I'm the one who will fulfill the law and I don't condemn you. I call you my own. Well, all of a sudden, everything's completely different. You don't need that anymore. The gospel is this reorienting call that God loves you that God has forgiven you for the sake of his son, Jesus Christ, your sins, past, present, future, have been paid for already. And God has called you his son. God has called you his daughter. And so all of a sudden, this go and sin no more is not this or else. It's this gospel invitation. You can do things differently. You can change. You can stop chasing after all of those things. And like any recovery group knows, relapses happen, right? And they happen often. And they happen after years and years, sometimes decades. And if the next day that same woman was dragged before Jesus in the exact same circumstances, I think things would have played out exactly like they did. If the prodigal son who'd sold, or took dad's possession, sold it all, wasted it all, and came back, did it all over again the next week, the father would welcome that son back all over again every single time until maybe that son got it, until maybe this daughter gets it. And change and things happen and sin begins to fall away because it's, you realize it wasn't working anyway was not where I was finding anything that would last anyway. I love this as we get into the law and a right understanding of it. That all of a sudden, the law becomes, yes, God's will, and yes, always convicting. But when I realize that the lawgiver is the one who's called me son... That the lawgiver is the one who fulfilled the law for me. That the finger that wrote the law is the finger that also went to the cross. Well, all of a sudden now, go and sin no more means God help me change. 
God, show me your will. Let me close with this, because I, I love the unity of Scripture. In John 8, by the end of the chapter of John 8, Jesus is confronted again with the Pharisees. And John 8 starts with a confrontation and Pharisees holding rocks ready to stone a woman. At the end of John 8, the Pharisees and Jesus are arguing, and the I am, Yahweh, who wrote the law, is being confronted by them. He says this to the Pharisees, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they pick up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple because it wasn't time for him to be stoned. It wasn't time for the penalty of the law to be meted out on him. See, God in his glory, God in his wisdom, and God in his grace says to you, I am, I was, I am, and I will be. And I am for you, not against you. I don't condemn you. I've called you my own. Go and sin no more. You don't need to keep doing that. But even if you do, and you come back here tomorrow, I'm still gonna call you my daughter. I'm still gonna call you my son. And I'm still gonna welcome you home. Go and sin no more. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast. If you've enjoyed this message, would you consider giving to the work God is doing through the sanctuary? You can visit our website, thesanctuaryjupiter.com slash give for more information on ways to give. That's thesanctuaryjupiter.com slash give. Thanks for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast.